Well, good morning, everyone. It's warming up a little bit, so I'm going to put aside my down vest. Um, I think we're good for one more Sunday after this. Uh, it's actually supposed to be warmer next Sunday, if they're right. And then in November, we will transition to the inside. So thank you, guys. You are, um, you are a tough crew to be out here. Be out here in the uh, in the cold. Can you hear me? There we go. So my name is Paul Buckley. I am uh, the lead pastor here. My privilege on many Sundays to bring God's word. We are going through First John together, and we will be in chapter two, verses twelve through fourteen. Anything I need to do to help with the sound? No, we have some challenges today. Well, I can always. How do you perceive yourself? How do you communicate to others who you are? Who are you? Are you a computer? Who are you? Are you a woman? Are you a man? Are you something else? How do you know that? Are you white? Are you black? Are you Latino? Are you Asian? Who are you? What does that mean? Are you a pretty face? Are you a hot body? Are you a smart mind? Are you an older person who used to be one of those things? Are you a business person? Are you a teacher? Are you an engineer? Are you a salesperson? Are you a pastor? Who are you? How do you know? And why does it matter? These are always important questions. And in our time in history, perhaps more so than any recent time, these are questions and answers that we insist on as a culture, yet don't know how to answer. And yet every day, what you do, the choices you make, the way you act, what you decide to do with your life, really hinges on how you answer that question, who are you? In our passage today, the Apostle John is going to answer that question. He's speaking, he's writing to his friends, and his friends are facing a difficulty in their church where there are people who are claiming to be Christians, um, and they've left the church, and they're confusing people. And so John wants them to understand and know how you know if you know God. How do you know if you don't? And he's saying some challenging things. We've already seen that so far, right? We're going to continue to see things that are challenging uh, for us to consider. And John pauses in this moment in, ch in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, to help his readers understand who they are. Because John's not writing to them because he doubts who they are. It's because he knows who they are. And so at this point in his letter, he wants to assure them in who they are. Isn't God good to give us his word that we can answer the question? 
when our culture is wondering, and we are wondering at times who we are, God's word tells us that we can build our lives around who we are. And, and I'll tell you ahead of time what it's going to teach you. You are those who know God and know his infinite grace. That's who you are. You are those who know God and know his infinite grace. Let's pray that he might speak to us through his word today. Lord, we thank you for your, your word, that we're not left alone to figure this question out. You speak to us, and you illumine your word, and you, Holy Spirit, make the truth known to our hearts in a way that's profound, and it changes us. And I pray, Spirit of God, would you have your way today? Would you, Lord God, work that we might understand your truth and be transformed by it, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers because you know him who is from the beginning I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one God's word from 1st John chapter 2 I want to talk about these three types of categories of Christian here these three descriptions that John uses where he speaks of children youth and fathers and in this, we are going to learn that we are those who know God and know his infinite grace. Now, people debate, Bible scholars debate what John's talking about. What does he mean? What is little children? What are fathers? What are, what are young men? Is this literal? Are these literally, in terms of physical time, children, youth, and fathers? Is this about phases of regular life? Are they spiritual Children, youth, and father, is this something that every believer is in some way, a youth or a child or a father or mother? Well, let's first take a look at the term children. Our passage uses the term little children and children, both. Those are actually two different words in the original language. The first, little children, is a word that, that can be translated like kids. It's a, it's a term of endearment. For children, so so the English Standard Version uses little children to translate that. This is a term that actually John loves to use. He uses it seven times in this letter, and he uses it to speak to the people who are reading the letter. And so we've already seen this in chapter two, verse one. He says, "My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin." Uh, later on in chapter two, he's going to say, "Now, little children, abide in Him." Chapter 3, little children, let no one deceive you. Chapter 3, 18, little children, let, let, us not love the wor let, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Chapter 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then finally, little children, chapter 5, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. John uses this a lot in this letter, this term little children. It's distinct from the other word in our passage. When it, uh, 
latter part of verse 13, I write to you children. It's not little children in the ESV. It's just children, and that's the generic term for children. It's not the term of endearment. It's just that uh, the word that describes those that are from parents, children. So he uses this little children term seven times, and he uses it in this passage in a parallel way with his other children term. Now, we have to understand a few things. First, John is pretty old when he writes this. We don't know exactly when it was written, but probably as late as 90 AD. So John is like 80 plus. He's older. And he's speaking to this congregation, these people who who he knows. And and it makes sense, right? Um, If it was 20-year-old John saying little children, it might be a little weird. Just think of it if... if, uh, our pastoral intern, Brendan Norton, got up next Sunday and, and said, my dear little children to us, it would be kind of like, Brendan, you're like 28 or something. Um, I'm almost twice your age. I actually am twice your age. Um, but if Billy Graham, at 90-something years old, was still alive and came to us and said, my dear little children who belong to God, it would make sense. That's what John's doing. He, he's older. He can use this term, and he's really using it for everybody. It's not just for those that are young physically or those that are young spiritually. He calls everybody, my dear little children, or little children. And so he's using this term in this passage that way. I think we need to understand it that way. It's for all of us. So we all fit in the category of little children in this section. Now, we're going to go on to see that the terms young man or youth and fathers, or we can say fathers and mothers, older, elderly people, relatively speaking, those are categories that apply to stages of life. We'll see as we dig into it. But the word children, little children and children, is for all of us. And John, when he does this, he wants to catch our attention with his term of endearment that we might listen, that we might pause like little children listening to their father or mother and hear what he has to say. So little children. And how does he describe little children? I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Then later he's going to say, I write to you children because you know the Father. To be a child is, is to be in relationship with the parent. That's the context here. And so for us, John wants the, us to understand when we seek to answer the question, who are you? We are children of the Father. We are children who belong to a family. We are children who are welcomed into the family of God, and we are forgiven for Jesus' sake, for his name's sake. We are children who are forgiven. This is at the core of who we are. It's amazing because we don't deserve to be in the family of God. We could not earn our way, and if we are honest with ourselves, we have sins. We have sinned against God. We are enemies, naturally rebels against Him, and we've run from God. We've rebelled against God. We're like the prodigal in Luke 15 who who looks at the Father's graciousness, has everything he needs under the Father's care, and says, I don't want you. I want your stuff. I'm out of here. That's the reality for all of humanity, for us in our natural state, 
we say to God the Father, who is the one who's provided every good thing, who takes care of us at every moment, every beat of our heart, every every electron that goes around a nucleus, every molecule that works, everything in our lives is sustained by him. And if he were to withdraw his hand for an instant, we would all perish. So he's ever caring for us. He's ever gracious. He's ever good. He's the perfect father. And yet we say to him, we don't want you. We want your stuff. We're out of here. That's the natural state we all are born in and we live out and we'll continue in unless we would be rescued by God. And so when he says, I'm writing you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That's at the core of our identity. We are forgiven ones. We are children who are beloved and belong to him. And we are forgiven. We've come into the light. And we live in this light of Jesus. And we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all of our sin. Not just our past sins. Not just the things we did before we understood the truth of Jesus. But the things we do as believers. As those who are part of the family. Those sins are forgiven too. It's an ongoing reality and experience for us. And it's at the core of our identity. We are little children. We are beloved. And we are forgiven ones. It's so important to get this and to understand this at the core of who you are. If you don't get that you are forgiven, you're going to have a hard time in getting the rest of the things that are true about you. You're going to have a hard time understanding what it is to relate to God. If you don't base it on the fact that you are first forgiven ones, you are dear little children who are forgiven. And how are we forgiven? Well, it says right here, right? Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Whose name? It's the name of Jesus. Our sins are forgiven they're forgiven for his name's sake. We are forgiven because of Jesus. It is his name and through him that we are forgiven. Jesus is the one, the only righteous human being, God in the flesh. He, through his death on the cross, through his blood, blood shed for us, through his righteous life offered for us, through his holiness and worth and his sacrifice on the cross, through his atonement, through his victory over sin and death and his vindication and resurrection, for his name's sake, we are forgiven. So at the core of our identity is that we are dear little children forgiven for his name's sake. So being connected to Jesus is at the core of our identity. It's for his name's sake. It's not for any other name. There is no other name by which we can be saved. There is no other name to rescue us from our predicament. There is no other name that will will take us from this place where we, where we are lost in our sin and are struggling and aware of it to the place where we are forgiven and we experience new life to love and to obey. There's no other name that does that. There's no other truth or semi-truth that will work. There's no other name by which we're saved except that of Christ. There is no other name who is true and truth itself. We are forgiven for His name's sake don't trust in any other name don't trust in any 
other name. There is a tendency in all of us to trust in names besides Jesus. There are names out there begging for us to trust in them. They cannot save. They cannot rescue us. They cannot redeem us. They cannot transform us. They cannot answer the question, who are you? And the way that the question gets answered here, it will not work. Don't trust in any other name. Don't trust in your own name. Don't trust in your own righteousness. Don't trust in your own sincerity. Don't trust in your own spirituality. It will not work. It will not save you. Do not trust in any other name. Don't trust in the name of a political candidate. He or she will not save you. Do not trust in any church leader. He cannot save you. He or she cannot save you. Do not trust in a sports star or an actor or a Christian hero. All these things have their appropriate place, certainly, but do not trust in them. There's only one name by which we are saved. There's only one person, God in the flesh, who can give you an identity that's rock solid, that works, that functions, that's bigger than your mistakes, bigger than your weakness, bigger than your, your short life. There's only one name. Do not trust any other name. We are dear little children and our sins are forgiven for his namesake. We're like that prodigal in Luke 15 who runs away, as I said. And yet that's not the whole story. Even in the original parable, there's more to the story because there's an elder brother who loves us with his father and goes after us. Jesus is that elder brother. He chases us down in our sin and in our lostness and he gives his very life for us, sheds his blood for us to redeem us. And this comes from his love for us and the love of the, of the Father. And the Father loves us in Jesus with an everlasting love. He's loved us from before time. He, he knows what he's doing. He's had a plan with the Son and by the power of the Spirit to rescue us, to make us dear little children whose sins are forgiven. He loves us and rejoices over us. He is ever providing for us, guiding us, protecting us, ever good, ever thoughtful of us. His thoughts towards us are innumerable. His affections are set on us. He delights in us. He rejoices over us with singing. You are dear children whose sins are forgiven for his namesake. And he is the perfect father. You know the father. Your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. He is your Father. He is your Father. The perfect Father. Always good. This is who you are. How do you answer the question, who are you? You are dear little children, forgiven for your sins, who know the Father. That's who you are. There's no better identity that you could ever have than that. I think of what a, a, a young daughter or son is like around a good, wise, and gracious father. And it's interesting, as a grandparent, uh, I get to observe that in a way that I didn't when I was a young parent myself. Not that I was not that at all, but I think I was so busy just trying to take care of things as a young dad, I didn't stop to realize kind of what's, what's happening here. And now as a grandparent, I watch my granddaughters, Ellie and Susie, and I watch who they are, and I watch the joy and the security 
and, and just a flourishing. And I'm watching their gifts emerge and their personalities emerge. And I realize that their parents and their parents' love for them and provision for them sets the context for them to be who they are. Again, when I was that age, just so busy trying to be a young dad. But now as a grandparent, I look at that. And that's a picture of who God is for us and who we are in Him. We're to be like that young child, secure in our Father, knowing that we're loved and that our sins are forgiven and that He's provided the most expensive commodity He could ever provide, the elder Son, His own Son, the eternal Son, in the flesh, paying for our sins. That's who you are. How do you answer the question, who are you? I'm a dear child of the Father, forgiven and beloved. That's who you are. Is there some other way that you look at yourself? Is there some other identity that you stand on besides this? Don't do it. This is here for you that you might stand on something rock solid. And you may understand the, the depth of what it means because there's depth here. We're only beginning to probe. Don't be satisfied with just mere you know, intellectual ascension. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a child of a father. Oh, it's so much deeper than what you know and what I know. Ask the Spirit of God to give you power that from your heart you might say, Abba, Father, I'm a child. I'm forgiven. I'm beloved. I know you. That's who you are. Well, John continues. He speaks of youth. He speaks of youth twice here. Each time he, he, he speaks of uh, each category twice. And John, we're learning, repeats things a lot. But if you'll notice as he repeats it, he doesn't do that because he's forgetful. Like I am, I repeat the same story over and over again to the same people sometimes. He's not doing that. He is repeating himself to emphasize things, and he brings change to what he says. So the change helps you understand the point. Or if there's not change, if he says the exact same thing twice, that's the point. He's basically saying, guys, there's, there's no more nuance to add. It's all in that statement. I'm going to say it again. So he's repeating himself here as he speaks of children and as he speaks of, of young men and fathers. And so he speaks of youth here. He speaks of young men. The term is young men, and the application here is youth. It's a term that was used at that point in time to, to mean uh, basically anybody under 40 would have been called this term, any man. It's a masculine term, but in Scripture when it uses masculine terms, that's how you do a catch-all plural. So we say you know, men and women. We don't have a simple way of doing that. Other languages you just say men, and it means men and women. So the idea here is not to exclude it to only men. It's to speak of youth, and certainly young men would typify these things in maybe a, a distinct way. So this is a term for those under 40, roughly. But I don't think he's trying to say it's exactly 40, um, but it's youth. Uh, and so if you're 40-ish, don't exclude yourself. But maybe if you're 50 or older, you can exclude yourself. Sorry, boomers. Um, actually, you know, Xers, if you're an Xer, you are 40 to 56. So, sorry, Xers. But millennials and, and uh, Zoomers, um, you're in the category here. And so he's speaking to young people. So this is an age-specific 
description here. And I'd, I'd generalize it. We can extend it up to 50, 15 to 50 or so. It, it's not meant to be exact. But he wants to speak to, to people in this general category because there are distinct challenges and di distinct aspects of who you are that he wants you to get. He wants to know who you are as a young person. He wants you to be able to answer this question, who are you? And so there's three things he says here, right, of, of young people. He says in verse 13, second half, I, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. So he says that, and then he's going to say it again. So listen to how he says it the second time. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So see the repetition and see what John's doing. He's bringing emphasis. He's bringing, he's bringing added emphasis to what he's saying here. And there's things for us to learn. This is with great purpose. It's the word of God. And so he's speaking to young people here. They've overcome the evil one. They are strong. The word of God abides in them. These things are connected. What I would submit to you is that he wants to say, this, is, this characterizes who you are. You have overcome the evil one. There's a battle going on as a young person, and you've overcome the evil one. This is who you are. This is at the core of who you are. You're in the battle at this phase in your life in a, in a significant way, a distinct way, and you've overcome the evil one. Yet the second description adds more to that because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And that's important to get. They're connected. Because your overcoming of the evil one isn't because you're great. It isn't because you're youthful. It isn't because you're physically strong or your brain is real sharp. It isn't because you're at the prime of your life. That's not, not what he's saying. You don't just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and take on the devil and overcome him. That's not what he's saying. Though you are characterized by those who are in the battle, engaged in overcoming the evil one, engaged in advancing the kingdom of God. That's a part of who you are. There is an identity connected to youthfulness that you are a doer. You are active. You're using your energies and abilities to accomplish things, to overcome, to build the kingdom. But it's not done in your own strength because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. This, this phrase, the word of God abides in you, is something that John uses a lot, a good amount of times in Scripture. John 5, 38, he, he says, and you do not have his word, speaking to uh, those that aren't believers, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You will bear much fruit, he says later. What, uh, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you in 1 John 2. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. The idea is that the word of God, the truth of God, and at the core of the word of God, this is, a, this is used as a uh, phrase, shorthand, for the gospel. And certainly it means the whole word, but the word is not just a random assembly of, of different scriptures. There's, there's a theology, there's a center point to the Bible. The Bible is ultimately pointing to Jesus and pointing from Jesus. That's the, the central point of the Bible. So when it says the word of God abides in you, it doesn't mean just simply some verse here abides in you, but the truth of Jesus, God the Son, the righteous one living the righteous life, dying for your sins, rising again, reigning and returning, and all that comes from that, that's what's abiding in you. The gospel, the good news, abides in you. The word of God abides in you. That's what he's getting at. 
And that's why you're strong. And that's why you overcome the evil one. This is who you are as, as a young person. You're one who's overcome the evil one. You're one who experiences the word of God at work in you. And you experience strength. That's what John's saying here about the young people. Now, why would he say this? Because it's interesting how he says different things to different age groups here, particularly young men and fathers. Well, I think it's because it's true if you're a believer. And he wants you to ground yourself in this truth. And also that is in contrast to the temptations that are out there because there's a lot of other things that could abide in you. There's lots of other things that could be the core anthem of your life, the core belief about your reality, about what life's about and what, what it is to be in this world. There are lots of other things that could, could be there at the core that define and drive your life. And John wants the believing young person to understand that's not who you are. It's not who you are. And that's the motivation, by the way, in Scripture, and that's the power in Scripture to not be those things. It's not just to say, well, I shouldn't do it, but to realize it's not who I am in Jesus. And I must realize and live in light of who I am. The Word of God abides in me, not these other things. And there's lots of other things that vie for that place in your life. There's other words that could abide in you, other principles. Let me name some. Acceptance by your peers. That might be what abides in you if you let it. It can define you and drive you to be accepted, to be liked, to be laughed at, to be invited to parties, to be spoken of in a positive way. That can be what abides in you. That's what abided in me before I knew Christ. And it just about destroyed my life. Interest in the opposite sex might be what abides in you. A boyfriend, a girlfriend, getting a spouse. That might be what abides in you and drives you. That too will destroy you. Left to itself. Other things, a successful career. Financial prosperity, an ideal home, all those things can be what abides in you, what drives you and defines you. We see it all around us. We see it in us. And if you've been following Jesus long enough, you've seen dear friends abandon Jesus to these things. And it grieves me grieves all who love God to see people choose to have something else define and drive their life besides the Word of God, besides Jesus. The problem isn't these things necessarily. There's a place for these things. It's when we make these things what defines and drives us versus Jesus, versus the Word, versus the reality of who He is and what He's done. And there's only one word that is ultimate and final. It's the word of God. There's no better word. It's foolishness, pure foolishness, to allow another word to define and drive our lives, to allow another word to be the answer to the question, who are you? And when you let that word of God, the gospel, define and drive you, you experience strength in your life. And you overcome the evil one. These things are connected. 
There's strength that flows from the Word of God. And, and we see it in a, in a unique way in young people. We see a vibrancy. We see a, a motivation that's there from the Word of God in their lives that's unique. And that's part of what John's getting at. You are in a season of your life where the Word of God should be energizing you to live your life in all sorts of ways. And there are all sorts of ways to follow the Lord, those the Scripture guides us. For Paul, he says, when he was in his youth, for this I toil, speaking of, of making everyone mature in Christ, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Later on in Colossians, Paul says to those of us who may not be called to be apostles, that's all of us, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Work at it heartily. Work at it with all your strength. Work at it with the strength that is in you. Whatever you do, whatever your vocation is, wherever you are, work at it with the strength that he gives you. The gospel should fuel you in all that you do. That's how it works. And it gives us strength in the realm to overcome the evil one. And that characterizes young people. It says, it says it twice of the youth. You have overcome the evil one. You've overcome the evil one. What a statement. Now the evil one is no wimp. He's no trivial thing. He's nothing to be laughed at. You shouldn't assume that you have the ability to overcome the evil one. He's real. He's active. His power is way greater than yours. He's a lot smarter than you too, by the way. Don't try to outsmart him in your own terms. It's important to understand that this, this is no insignificant thing to say you've overcome the evil one. The evil one is powerful. Actually, John's going to say later, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, he says. Now, this doesn't mean every aspect of God's creation. It means the, the fallen world, the world in rebellion against God, is in the power of the evil one. He's at work to manipulate systems and people who are not submitted to the word, not submitted to Jesus. And he does that in different ways. It doesn't mean they're as evil as they ought, as they could be. But there's still manipulation and power there going on. And so, so John is saying this. It's, it's an encouragement for the young people. But it's also a warning, isn't it? You've overcome the evil one as you abide in the word and as the word makes you strong. And there's an evil one that's out there. And you need to be careful. And if you let something else define and drive you, you won't overcome the evil one. You'll engage and you'll befriend the evil one. And that's part of the temptation of youth, isn't it? To... To, to say the whole world is my oyster. You ever heard that phrase? That's an interesting phrase. Um, the world is my oyster. It comes from Shakespeare. Uh, there's a line in the Merry Wives of Windsor. Flagstaff says, I will not lend thee a penny. And the, his friend says, why then the world's mine oyster, which I will, will, with sword will open. So basically, you won't give me any money? The whole world is mine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in the world and I'm going to take advantage of everything that's there. I'm going to make myself great in the world. That's what, that's what it means. The world is my oyster. It's at my disposal. And the temptation for youth is to say, the world's my oyster. I'm 18. I'm full of energy and ambition. And the world's my oyster. So let's go jump in. The world is not your oyster. The world is a cesspool. Apart from God and his reign, 
squirrel's not your oyster, it's a cesspool. You don't want to fall in there. So don't do it. Don't fall for that lie. You've been given power in the word to overcome the evil one and overcome the world. John says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The light has come and it's shining in your heart. And what's out there in the world is darkness, not light. Your job is not to come under the systems of the world and not to engage the world, but to go into the world and bring the light. Let the word fill your heart. Let it give you strength and energy and be part of overcoming the evil one and extending the kingdom. The light is to prevail and to drive out the darkness and extend the kingdom. And when you're young, you're in a unique place to do that in whatever capacity and giftedness the Lord has given you. That's what John is talking about here. There's a warning here, but there's encouragement. That's his aim here. Be encouraged and understand this and define yourself this way. God has chosen to use young people, again, 15 to 50, general category, to build his kingdom. You're in a unique season of life to do the work of God. And you are to define yourself. You are to answer the question of who you are by saying, the word of God abides in me. I have strength. And I overcome the evil one in him. This is who I am. He's at work in me for these reasons. God has historically used young people to build his kingdom. It's not hard to see. Jesus was only 30 when he started his ministry. Timothy was a key young leader. King Josiah reformed Israel at 26. Martin Luther you think of him as being old. He was 34 when he started the Reformation. John Calvin was 25. George Whitfield started the Great Awakening at 24. C.T. Studd shocked England by giving away his vast inheritance and became a missionary at 25. Evan Roberts started the Welsh Revival at 26. The Jesus Movement, the last significant revival, apart from the quiet revival that's going on now, was led by young people. Much of the church planting that goes on right now, and it's wonderful in New England. We're seeing quite a season of church planting is led by young leaders. They're young people. You are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. So be engaged in the mission. Be engaged in building the church. Step up and take your place in the life and mission of King Grace Church. I want to say frankly, I think there are too many boomers in our church versus others as far as leadership and participation. And that's great. I have nothing against boomers. I'm a boomer. But those younger than the boomers, we need you to step up and to take your place in the life and mission of our church. So don't exclude yourself. Don't say this is my parents' church. It's not. It's Jesus' church. You need to live in the strength that God has given you and use these years to give yourself to the life and mission of our church as we take our place as fathers and mothers in the church and those over 40 or 50. You need to make room. One of the biggest mistakes a church can make is to create a culture 
that's particular to an age group and to keep that culture all the way through and hurt this diegite because that, that group doesn't understand that they've created a very tight culture for the church and you can't get in. And so, boomers, you need to make room. And probably the first thing you need to do is just talk to someone who's a Zoomer or a millennial and say, help me understand what barriers I've created just in who I am, not meaning to, that make it hard for you. And be ready, boomers and Xers, for the cultural change. There's a different culture. And there's lots of good things. There are, there's good things in our culture, but we need to walk together under Jesus to learn to take all of our cultures to honor him with that. So make room, boomers, that the young people can step up. We've been praying for you, young people, to do this. God has answered our prayers in the past. We sent out a lot of our young people to implant, and that's great. But we need you to step up into our church now to help lead in the life and mission. That's part of what John's getting at. This is who you are. You're strong. The Word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. So step up and walk into what the Lord has. Final, you are, uh, you are fathers. John talks about the third category. Who know the one who is from the beginning. I have no idea what time it is right now. Good, we're, we're doing all right. It's something in proclaiming God's word. You get caught in a time warp and you don't know what time it is. So, Final category, we have time for this. It's fathers. The word father. Now it applies to those that are older. Maybe over 50, maybe over 60, whatever line you want to draw. Those who are older. You've been around, you're past those years of youthful energy and strength. I was just talking with John Janelle about this this morning. You just don't have the energy you used to have. That's just part of what goes on in life. And so John is speaking to fathers. He's speaking to those who are older, those who have been around, and they are characterized how? How does he characterize fathers? Those that are older, men and women. He says, because you know him who is from the beginning. Who is the one who's from the beginning? Jesus. You know the one who's from the beginning. And, and Jesus is this one who's from the beginning. This is how John speaks of Jesus in other places. The Gospel of John starts this way. Revelation, actually, he speaks of it. And it's not just you're the beginning, but I think implied in that he's the end. He's before all time, the origin of all things. He's the completion. It's all about him. It's all for him. He's the Alpha and Omega. So Revelation says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and who is to come. And then Revelation uh, 1, actually at the end of Revelation, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is Jesus. He is the one who's from the beginning. He's the one who's in charge of all things. It's all about him ultimately, from him, through him, and to him. And through him, glory is brought to the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. He is what it's all about. And, and I believe that John is saying, fathers, you know him who's from the beginning. And he repeats the same thing. He doesn't add to it. He doesn't change it like he does with the other categories. Why? I think there's a point in your life when you've been around long enough and maybe you've strived enough times in your own strength and you've gotten old and your energy is going away and you settle into the truth 
It's all about Him. It's all about Him. And yes, I can try things, and yes, I'm called to do things, but He's in control. It's all from Him, and through Him, and to Him. It's ultimately all about Him. There's a wisdom that we're to live in as we walk with the Lord in time. And we know the one who's from the beginning. We ground ourselves in knowing the one who's from the beginning. We ground ourselves in this identity when people say, who are you? You say, I'm just one who knows God. I know the one from the beginning. I belong to him. This is who I am. I don't, I'm not seeking an identity elsewhere. I'm resting in him. It's all about him. And I can deal with getting old. I can deal with my failed attempts. I can deal with the fact that I had dreams that didn't come true. And they were good dreams. Because I know the one who's from the beginning. I know the one who started this whole thing. And I know the one who will finish it. And despite my best attempts and all the good that I've been able to be a part of and all the things that I did wrong and I'm forgiven for, it's not about me. It's about him, and I'm good with that. It's interesting. That's what John's saying. I think in repeating this, it's, it's simply this. This is the core. We don't need another part of our identity. We know him who is from the beginning. This past week, 465 years ago, Anglican Bishop Nicholas Ridley was burned alive at the stake for his faith in the one who's from the beginning. Burned alive by order of Queen Mary. And on the night before his execution, his brother offered to remain with him in the prison chamber to be of assistance and bring comfort to him. Nicholas Ridley declined the offer, saying, quote, I intend, God willing, to go to bed and sleep as quietly tonight as I ever did. How could he say? He knew and he knows the one who's from the beginning. He could rest in the everlasting arms and trust God for his life. Dear fathers and mothers, this is your confidence too. This is who you are. You know him who is from the beginning. You know his everlasting, infinite grace. You know his glory. This is who you are. No matter what stage you are at in the Christian life, you can know confidently who you are. You can answer the question, who you are. You are those who know God and his infinite grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who we are in you. We thank you for this word. Lord, this part of scripture and how it helps us so much. I pray, Lord God, you strengthen each one of us in the knowledge of who we are in you. And that we can walk with you and serve you and glorify your worthy name. We just thank you so much. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.